Hey, my name is Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's message. Uh, I hope that it's encouraging to you and inspiring to you. I hope that it causes you to dive deeper into the scriptures. And I hope that you're able to do that with some people around you, with some community. Um, but if you don't have that, we would love to invite you into the community here at Restore. If you want to take a next step, get more connected, you can just go to restoreaustin.org slash connect, fill out a card on there, and I will personally reach out to you in the days after you do that. And if you want to grab coffee with me or just get more information about the church, I will make myself available to you for that. As you will hear, we are in this thing called a year around the table, and it really comes from this vision that God's given us that Restore would be a place where anyone has a seat at the table and everyone experiences the extravagant love of Jesus. So A, I hope that you experience the extravagant love of Jesus as you check this message out. And B, if you don't have a table to sit at, we want to invite you to Jesus' table here at Restore. I met my wife, Amy, in a sixth grade English class. Here's what we looked like back then. Wow. That is the correct height differential, too, just in case you were wondering what was happening back then. Now, Amy was this super compliant, straight-A student, faithful member of her youth group, beloved by every adult at school, and I was not. I was a punk kid who'd been kicked out of both a church and a private Christian school in just the previous year alone to that picture being taken. I would actually go on to set the record for referrals and lunch detentions a year um, in, in one year, the very next grade, seventh grade. In case you're wondering, it was 37 office referrals and 100 lunch detentions. Over 100. They stopped counting, I think, triple digits. And according to my sources at Dalster Middle School in Buda, that record still stands. <laughs> Nobody's really even come close, to be honest. Now, Amy and I had most of our classes together, and I always ended up sitting next to her. Now, that was mostly because I would get in trouble, right? And I would get moved away from the other hooligans and sat next to the most exemplary student in class, which was Amy. Now, throughout middle school, we were in puppy love. It's true. But her dad had this unyielding rule that she could not go on a date until she was 16. So when her family decided to move after our seventh grade year, I was distraught. I was devastated. Amy was mildly glum. <laughs> but then on the last day of school, we made a promise. And that promise was that I would be her first real date when she turned 16. And so for the next four years, we kept up through AIM. Y'all know about AIM? That's AOL Instant Messenger for all you Gen Z people out there. And when her 16th birthday finally rolled around, I took Amy out for her first date. I thought it went really well. She did not think it went as well. But that's because we had taken seemingly inevitable yet divergent paths since that promise at the end of seventh grade. I spent the vast majority of my time partying and playing sports while she was a leader in her youth group and on track to graduate early as the salutatorian, which she did. Amy knew we were headed in very different directions and that dating me wasn't exactly a wise choice. So after that date, when I texted her, hey, let's hang out again soon, that was amazing, she politely responded, maybe just as friends, smiley face emoji. We didn't see each other much over the next year. But when the summer before my senior year of high school and her freshman year of college came around, we were brought together by God or fate or some combination of the two. I've told that story before. It's that one night on, out on the Lake Travis with some friends, I overdosed on a combination of cough medicine and alcohol. 
And that next night, I was back out on the lake trying to pretend kind of nothing had happened when I watched a college student overdose and drown, pass away. Needless to say, I was shaken up by that experience, right? And after that happened, I struggled through some really, like, existential questions. Like, why am I here? And what's the purpose of life? And is God real? This God I'd heard about since I was a kid, but never really believed in. Is he real? And even though I'd been kicked out of church and found the Christianity I'd been exposed to somewhat archaic and oppressive, I decided to start trying to find answers to these questions by reading the Bible. And thank God I started in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because I'd always known about the beginning and end of Jesus' life, Christmas and Easter, but I had no idea about kind of the rest of it. And as I read, I couldn't believe how much he loved to hang out with people on the margins, how he didn't care about getting trouble for sharing a meal with tax collectors and prostitutes, the folks that I most identified with in the story, and how he just loved people so radically, and I fell in love with the love of Jesus. But I had no idea what to do or who to talk to about it. And then it hit me. I have to call Amy. She was the only Christian I'd ever known who didn't judge me or beat me over the head with a Bible. So I invited her to lunch. We ended up spending hours together that day just talking about life and Jesus and everything in between. I told her all the terrible things that I'd been doing, a laundry list of sins that would have caused probably even the tax collectors and prostitutes to blush a little bit. I half expected her to stand up from this lunch, politely excuse herself, and walk away, but she didn't. Amy treated me exactly like the Jesus I read about treated people. And just like that, just like I fell in love with his love, I began to fall in love with hers as well. And there's so much more to the rest of that story, but the short version is this. We started dating a few weeks later. We got married when we were 21, had our first kid when we were 25, planted Restore when we were 26, and next month we'll celebrate 12 years of marriage. Thanks. We've been through so much together, foster care, church planting, deconstruction, reconstruction, the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. But through it all, let me tell you, she has been the rock of our family. She has taught me so much about what it means to have faith and what it looks like to follow Jesus. And I'm honestly not sure I would still be a Christian without Amy, much less a pastor. So when I started working in churches in pastoral ministry as a 19-year-old college sophomore, and I saw the way women are often treated as second-class citizens in the church, I was really confused. I, couldn't pre I could preach, but Amy couldn't, even though she was exponentially more qualified to do so. I could lead, but she couldn't, even though she had a decade more of church leadership experience than I did. Now, even though I'm far more emotionally driven, which is probably shocking to some of you, she, she was the one who was stereotyped as hysterical anytime she showed any passion about anything. My comments on the Bible were taken as authoritative, while even her questions were questioned, even though she'd memorized more scripture than I had ever read at that point. I was confused, I was unsettled, and I was shocked. But you know who wasn't any of those things? Amy because that's how the church had treated her and other women her entire life, second-class citizens. The subjugation of women, often ridiculously called biblical womanhood, is tragically prevalent in the modern church. 
We're in the middle of this teaching series called All Inclusive, God's Big Beautiful Family. And in it, we're looking at stories from the life of Jesus and the early church of how God radically included and elevated and empowered people in his family who had previously been excluded and marginalized. Over the first two weeks, we've talked about ageism and racism. Next week, we'll have kind of a standalone message for Easter. And then we'll spend the last two weeks talking about classism and homophobia. But today, we're talking about sexism. Now, I realize that talking about sexism could also include a conversation about gender and transgender questions, but I'm going to address those the week we talk about homophobia. So today, we're focusing in on this uniquely prevalent problem of sexism, because it's interesting. It's the only type of marginalization that affects the majority of church members. Think about that. It's the only type of marginalization that affects the majority of church members. All the other isms we talk about often come down to like a majority versus minority problem right? Majority kind of using their power over the minority. Last week, we talked about a story from the Church of Acts in which an ethnic minority was being oppressed by an ethnic majority. This happens with racial minorities, sexual minorities, religious minorities, but all the time. But sexism is something that affects over half of the church. Because according to the latest Pew Research Center, women are 13% more likely to say their faith is very important in their lives than men. They're 8% more likely to attend weekly services, and the average church membership is about 60% women, 40% men. And yet, even as the majority sex, women are often marginalized in the church. So the question is, how did this happen? How did this happen? Well, in her game-changing book right here called The Making of Biblical Womanhood, How the Subjugation of Women Became Gospel Truth, historian and professor Dr. Beth Allison Barr goes into great detail about how we got here. Now, again, like last week, these are uh, five books that have been really influential to me in this journey of understanding this. They're all by incredible Christian leaders, um, interacting with Scripture and all this stuff. So I'm going to give these away at the end of the gathering. I would love if you want to come take a picture of them, and you can take them home, you can buy them yourself, or if you want to hang around till the end, I'll give you a copy, um, especially if money's an issue about buying a copy. I'd love to give you these. I bought extra ones um, because I have so been influenced and helped by them. I want to pay that forward. Now, we don't have time to go through all of Beth's book today, but like I said, I'm going to be giving her book away at the end. The short answer to the question, though, of how the subjugation of women got baptized and called biblical womanhood is that patriarchy has been the predominant worldview of most cultures throughout most of history. And just as people did with things like slavery and genocide and other terrible things, they snatched a few Bible verses out of context, held them up as proof that their oppression and violence are actually ordained by God. Like I said, this goes far beyond sexism. Rachel Held Evans describes this phenomenon in this book. She says this, If you are looking for verses with which to support slavery, you will find them. If you're looking for verses with which to abolish slavery, you will find them. If you're looking for verses with which to oppress women, you will find them. If you're looking for verses with which to liberate or honor women, you will find them. If you're looking for reasons to wage war, you will find them. If you're looking for reasons to promote peace, you will find them. If you want to do violence in this world, you will always find the weapons. If you want to heal, you will always find the balm. Because the truth is, the Bible is a really big, really diverse really beautiful collection of books. See, it's not one book. It's actually 66 different books written by over 40 authors in three different languages spanning three continents over a couple of thousand years. So if you want to grab a couple of verses out of it and use the Bible to support your worldview, you can probably do that. 
You can probably find a verse or two to make it say whatever you want it to say. Someone sent me this picture a while back. It so perfectly describes what I'm talking about. I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. (laughs) So when we approach issues like sexism in the church, we have to go deeper, right, than a proof text here and there. We have to look at first and foremost through the lens of Jesus, and then we have to look at these, these through lines, these overarching themes throughout the Bible. We'll come back to how Jesus interacted with women at the end, but first I want to look at the through line of what women actually did in the Bible. And this is really how my journey of untangling sexism from my faith began as an 18-year-old college freshman. Growing up in churches where women were second class, like I said, Amy and I, that's all I'd ever known. I hadn't seen it as prevalent as when we were 19 at that church, but it was really all I'd known. I thought that's what Scripture said. But then I had a New Testament professor challenge us to simply look at what women did in Scripture to see if that meshed up with what we've been told women were allowed to do. So what women actually did in Scripture versus what we were told Scripture said women were allowed to do. Just compare the two. And what I found is what Dr. Barr so succinctly says in her book. Biblical women contradict modern ideas of biblical womanhood. The Bible is filled with women who preach and pastor and lead. Let's spend the next few minutes going through a few examples. Here's Deborah. Deborah was a prophet placed in leadership over God's people in Judges chapter 4. She was a judge, which meant she was the point leader of Israel for 40 years. She was the person in charge. This is Huldah. Huldah was a prophet, an expert in the Torah, which we have as the first five books in our Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. She interpreted and authorized the canonization of the core of the Jewish scriptures in the Old Testament in 2 Kings 22. This is Esther. Esther was the queen and liberator of God's people. She bravely faced the possibility of death in order to save an entire nation from genocide. Did you also know that a number of biblical women were the first to do something very significant. Not the first woman, they were the first person. Let me show you what I mean. This is Hagar. Hagar was the first person to give God a name. She called him El Roy, which means the God who sees in Genesis 16. Prior to this interaction, God was the only one sharing his name with humanity. But Hagar, a single mother, a slave, with no rights or privilege whatsoever, gives God a name, and he says, you are right, that is mine. This is Mary of Nazareth, also known as the mother of Jesus. She's the first person to have the Messiah revealed to her. She's also the first person to believe Jesus is who he says he is, and the first person to become one of his disciples, one of his followers. This is Elizabeth. Elizabeth was the first person to prophesy over Jesus while he was still inside the womb in Luke chapter 1. She was Mary's cousin and the mother of John the Baptist. This is Anna. Anna was the first person to prophesy over Jesus after he was born in Luke chapter 2. When Mary and Joseph take Jesus to the temple, they meet Anna, who says that she is a prophet and that Jesus is going to bring redemption to humanity. This is Mary of Bethany. Mary of Bethany was the first person to anoint Jesus as king in Matthew 26. She caught a whole bunch of flack for it, too, if you remember that story. And Jesus said, leave her alone. She's doing a good thing. This is a Samaritan woman who meets Jesus at the well in John 4 and becomes the first evangelist ever. 
She believes that Jesus is the Messiah, and then he sends her back to her town to preach about him, and it says many of the people there, through her testimony, come to believe in Jesus. This is Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene was not only a disciple of Jesus, she was the first gospel preacher. In John 20, she is the first to see the resurrected Jesus, the first person that Jesus chooses to reveal himself to, and he commissions her to go share the good news with all the other disciples. In a culture where women could not legally be a witness to anything, Jesus made her the first witness of the resurrection. This is Lydia. Lydia decided to follow Jesus in Acts 16. In addition to becoming a pastor and evangelist, Lydia was the first church planter in Europe. This is Junia. And even though Junia wasn't the first apostle, Junia is one of only two people ever called outstanding among the apostles. She wasn't just an apostle. Junia was one of the most esteemed. How do we know that? Well, a persecutor of Christians turned church planter named Paul tells us about Junia in his letter to the church in Rome. In fact, despite what you may have heard about Paul, Paul trusted the sacred task of delivering and presenting his Roman letter to a woman named Phoebe. Phoebe was another pastor and leader in the early church. Paul was also good friends and co-laborers with a woman named Priscilla, who along with her husband led a church in her home. Now Priscilla was, not, was known not only for being a pastor, but for correcting the theology of a very prominent male pastor named Apollos. And in other biblical writings, Paul also mentions Nympha, Iodoa, Syntyche, three other women who pastored churches in their home in the first century. As Dr. Barr says, these biblical women and so many others contradict the subjugation of women, ironically called biblical womanhood. See, God, from the very beginning, created humanity to lead alongside each other in equality, regardless of sex or gender. This was his design. The opening chapter of the Bible reveals this truth. God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This is Adam and Eve, right? Do you know God goes on to instruct Adam and Eve to be fruitful, multiply, cultivate the ground, rule over everything? You know how many gendered instructions he gives them? Zero. He says, you both, y'all, them, you rule together. Adam doesn't get one set of commands and Eve gets another because there is no hierarchy between them. Hierarchy enters a world actually as a result of sin after the fall and God calls it a curse Genesis 3.16, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. That's the curse that sin brought on. You know, other parts of the curse are like unyielding crops and painful childbirth, things we've worked to remedy and bring back to God's original plan. So why have we not done that with gender hierarchy? We don't say, hey, don't plant any wheat in that field. Don't use any farming techniques because God said the land is only going to grow thistles. He said it's only going to be hard. That's what the curse says. We don't say, don't take any medication during childbirth. God wants you to be in as much pain as possible. That's the result of the curse. So then why do we perpetuate male dominance and call it God's will? 
Why do we perpetuate male dominance and call it God's will? Especially since we've already seen how followers of God throughout Scripture are committed to equality between the sexes. The truth is that patriarchy is a curse. Any form of gender hierarchy is not God's design or desire, but the direct result of sin entering the world. Now, I get it. Depending on your spiritual background or church tradition, you might be a little confused right now. Especially all the stuff about Paul empowering women. I get that. You're thinking maybe, like, isn't Paul the one who told women to be quiet in church and never have authority over men? Isn't he the one that said women shouldn't be pastors or preachers? Well, first of all, no, he didn't say any of those things. What he did do, on occasion, was address a specific issue inside of a specific church. Like in his letter to Timothy, when he tries to help him address one domineering woman in Ephesus who claimed she was ready to teach, but she actually wasn't. Paul tells Timothy she needs more time to learn and mature in in addition to having her false beliefs corrected. Side note, this is the advice that Paul gives about men all the time. We never grab it and say, well, men, I guess, shouldn't teach. Or in his letter to the church in Corinth, when Paul attempts to end repeated disruption to church meetings caused by a couple of women who ask too many kind of basic questions during the gathering. Paul's solution to this specific problem is that those wives go ask their husbands outside of the church gathering to avoid unnecessary disruption. Again, Paul is addressing specific issues in specific churches. The problem is that some folks have taken those very specific instructions about very specific issues and said they actually apply everywhere and for all time. In other words, they've taken something meant to be descriptive and made it prescriptive. This actually happens a lot in the Bible. But not all the time. Did you know Paul also told women to wear a head covering? Not a lot of head coverings in here. Do you know he told Christians to greet each other with a holy kiss when we met? I was in the lobby. I didn't see it. <laughs> see, no one is advocating for those passages to be prescriptive, right? We say, no, no, that was a specific thing. Contrary to what you may have been told, Paul honored, valued, and labored alongside women throughout his entire life in ministry. As the most prominent church leader in the first century world of the New Testament, he leaned on, learned from, and considered himself in equal partnership with a number of different women when it came to the ministry he was doing. Now, some might say, okay, Zach, all that might be true, whatever. But isn't it also true, right, that Paul plainly said, wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, Ephesians 5.22. You can't wiggle your way out of that one, Zach. And you're right. Paul says exactly that in Ephesians 5.22, and I can't wiggle my way out of it. But what I can do is show you the verse right before, Ephesians 5.21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's not just wives who are supposed to submit. It's everyone. I can also show you the verse right after, the command to the husbands. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands are supposed to sacrificially love their wives like Jesus loved the church. Do you remember how Jesus loved the church? Died for it. Paul is teaching mutual submission. 
So not only do biblical women contradict female subjugation, the New Testament subverts the patriarchal systems prevalent in the first century by encouraging a gender ethic based on full equality in Christ. Paul makes this ethic clear. Jesus makes this ethic clear all throughout the New Testament, but especially in Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So why did Paul do this? Well, because not only is it God's design, it's what he learned from hearing about the ministry of Jesus. At the beginning, we said we need to evaluate biblical womanhood through the lens of Jesus. Well, in a culture that marginalized women, Jesus elevated them. In a society where women had literally no legal rights outside of their husbands and fathers, Jesus chose them to lead. Some of you all know that I'm uh, fairly active on something called Twitter. And um, this is a tweet from Carlos Rodriguez. It's one of my very favorite ones. Carlos is actually going to be one of our summer mixtape guests this year. I want to say, as you look at that, these are not just random phrases that Carlos threw together. These are all taken from biblical stories of Jesus interacting with women. Okay, I'm going to run through them real quick. You ready? He protected women, like the one about to be stoned in John 8. He empowered women, like Joanna, Mary, and Susanna, and other female disciples in Matthew 12. He honored women publicly, like the widow giving her last dime at the temple in Luke 21. He released the voice of women, like the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4, who became the first evangelist. He confided in women, like Mary and Martha, who were like his sisters in Luke 10. He was funded by women, like Joanna and Susanna in Luke 8. He celebrated women by name, too many times to count. He learned from women, like the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15. He respected women in a world, like I said, where they had no legal rights. And he spoke of women as an example to follow like Mary Magdalene, who would go on to be a key leader in the first church and is today known as the Apostle of the Apostles. Y'all, women and men living and leading as equals is the way of Jesus. It's God's design since the very beginning for humanity. But somewhere along the path, the church has lost its way. We allowed the patriarchal norms of society to influence how we treat women. We allowed misogynistic men to distort the teachings of Jesus and the early church. And we allowed a handful of descriptive Bible verses to be plucked out of context and used to subjugate women. For far too long in the church, sexism has been baptized and called God's will. Enough is enough. Even in the midst of deeply patriarchal cultures, we see Jesus and the early church continuing to elevate and empower women. From Genesis to Revelation, we see stories of biblical women who preach and pastor and lead. Now, depending on where you grew up, how you grew up, what you've been taught about women's roles in the church, right about now you might be asking yourself, have I been lied to this whole time? And the answer is yes. You've absolutely been lied to. Now, you may have been lied to by incredibly well-meaning people who were also lied to and told this is God's will. This is what the Bible says. 
So let me be clear. The goal, y'all, is not to tear down every leader or church who is getting this wrong. The goal is to build something new, modeled after something very old, that very first all-inclusive church. The goal is to tell the truth about God's will for women and create spaces where people of any gender, age, race, socioeconomic status, sexual orientation, background, and ability can experience freedom and fullness of life that Jesus desires for them. That's what we're trying to do here at Restore. And there's no doubt in my mind that we are doing it imperfectly, but I'm telling you we are giving it all we've got. (laughs) But it doesn't stop here. Right? As followers of Christ, we are called to model the way of Jesus in every part of our lives. So I want to make it real practical for a second as we close. Because I think for women, this looks like understanding that God has gifted and called you as much as any man. That no matter what people tell you, you are every bit as qualified as your brother's. So boldly step into your calling. If there is a glass ceiling, give it a punch. Try to break it. And if you can't break it, if you can, find somewhere different to live out your calling if possible. And if you need any help with any of that, this church family is here to support you, to advocate for you on your behalf. And for men, this looks like leveraging any power or privilege we have to help elevate and empower women. Not in a way that is tokenizing or paternalistic, but in a way that is Christ-like. Because this is the way of Jesus. So let's step into it together. As sisters and brothers, as siblings in this big, beautiful, all-inclusive family. Let's pray. I thank you. I thank you for the biblical women. The biblical women who contradict the modern ideas of biblical womanhood. I thank you that from the beginning of Genesis and your creative design to the end of Revelation, that we see gender hierarchy being torn down, that we see equality being promoted. God, help us realize and understand that we are better when we are all together. And that your design, your goal, your mission is for each and every person, regardless of who they are, what they've done, or any intrinsic characteristic to experience fullness and freedom of life. To be a part of what you gave the instructions to Adam and Eve to lead and sustain and cultivate the world. I pray if there's any parts of our heart that have been influenced, that have been sin-infested by sexism, God, that you would rid us of that. You would cause us to be really introspective. You would set us free so that all people can be free. And that just like that Samaritan woman God, that you met at the well, that once we have been set free, once we have been fully embraced by you, by your love, 
by your salvation, that we would go out and we would share it with anyone and everyone we encounter. Empower us to do that, God, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.